My name is Mary Conquest. I'm your host for Safety Labs by Slice, the podcast where we explore the human side of safety to support safety professionals. We move past regulations and reportables to talk about the core skills of safety leadership, empathy, influence, trust, rapport, in other words, the soft skills that help you do the hard stuff. Hi there, welcome to Safety Labs by Slice. Investigations are a crucial part of a safety program. Traditionally, they help us answer the question, what went wrong, so we can prevent future incidents. Our guest today specializes in safety investigations and argues that investigations should play a much larger role in our organizations. We'll discuss different kinds of investigations, how they can influence outcomes for an organization, what investigation maturity looks like, and of course, what you, dear listener, can do to implement better investigations in your workplace. Mark Alston is our guest today. Mark is the Executive Director of Investigations Differently, a consultancy that helps organizations to harness people as part of the solution. It also delivers systemic risk reduction for its clients. Mark's extensive experience facilitating organizational learning started with a role as federal agent in the Australian Federal Police. He has more than 20 years in the field working for organizations such as the Royal Australian Air Force, BHP, Serco, Urban Utilities, and Powerlink. He specializes in investigations and risk management for mining, construction, and other high-risk industries. Mr. Alston also provides New View Workplace Investigations training and helps organizations understand their normal work. And if that sounds like an odd term, we'll return to it later, so stay tuned. Mark joins us from Queensland, Australia. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this. And I wanted to start with, I say the language around investigations, but it's really the term investigations. I think there's some emotional baggage that comes with that term. Why would you say that? (laughs) I couldn't agree with you more. There's a couple of things. I think the emotional baggage is predominantly around the fact that traditional investigations have a lot of blame. They focus on the worker. So the worker failed to follow a procedure. The worker made an error. The worker made a committed a violation. You know, the worker didn't do something. And that blame in the investigation resulted in outcomes such as the worker will be disciplined. The worker will be retrained. The worker will stand up in front of their workmates and admit their error and say they've been a very naughty person <laughs> and they will do it all differently if they'd only thought about it. And that means people are afraid of reporting incidents because they lead to this investigation. So I think that's a large part of it. And and the other part is just the term investigation. We use this investigation. And basically, we're in safety, we've taken it probably from our regulators across the world who have taken it from policing and the judicial system. And we're anything but a judicial system in workplace investigations. There's no judge, no impartial judge, for example. It's the manager who owns the work who normally is the last say in an investigation. There's no jury of our peers that, you know, make a decision on guilt or innocence. We don't have that. The people involved don't have the right to a lawyer of some description or an attorney or we call them wherever we are. And there's no right of appeal. So we're actually doing things in this judicial way 
when it's not a judicial process. And that's part of it. And it's not just the term investigations wrapped up in that. We use terms like witness statement. We use terms like collecting evidence, all these judicial terms, and people don't like getting in trouble. So, you know, there's no wonder that centres did a uh, survey not long ago and a third of workers in this survey were aware in the last 12 months of an incident or injury that went unreported. They then took that and asked them the next question, why didn't you report it? 35 or 36% fear of reporting, you know, and that says it all. So there's a third of incidents that aren't even getting reported through to management. So that's a scary number. That's sort of a context of where it came from. When we look at how investigations have been run traditionally, how would you define that and why do you think that it's not as effective as it could be? So traditionally, if we look at most organisation system and or procedural process around investigations, the objective of an investigation is to come up with actions that will prevent reoccurrence of that same incident. And I'd ask the audience, how well is that working for you? You know, have, have a look at what you've, all your incidents in the past and look at your repeat incidents. And that's been the traditional view of investigations. The, the problem with that is that to prevent reoccurrence of an incident, you'd almost, you'd have to eliminate the risk of the incident happening again. So to guarantee we don't repeat an incident, you'd have to eliminate the risk. Now, elimination is one of the hardest controls to apply in risk management or investigations. It's just almost impossible. We can do it, but it's very, very rare. So by driving this in this fashion, what we've done is we've put this fairly unattainable unattainable goal on our investigations, which drives us then to focus purely on that event. And what we end up with is a very linear view of what's going on. This, the, the issue happened, the event happened, and then it's why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? And then for some reason we decide, oh, we need to then define all these issues as either contributing factors, causal factors, or root causes. So the problem with that is failure is almost never linear. You know, work is incredibly complex. It come, emerges from the system of work. So it can't be linear, but we focus on this. And then owners of investigations or risk owners or managers then are very definitive about the scope. And they're like, they set this very narrow scope, which the investigator is not allowed to travel outside of. And then we don't get to the systemic risk that exists in the business. That's where we're at now. That's where we are with most investigations now. We're only identifying some superficial superficial organisational factors and or it's the worker. So we've got to fix the worker. And that's sort of where we are. As you're speaking, I'm thinking, you know, in order to eliminate the risk, you would have to be able to foresee every possible thing that could go wrong in every possible complex. And you're right, it's not linear. You know, it's always this really weird domino that no one foresaw. So it would almost have to happen in order for you to prevent it from happening again. A good example, say, is working at heights or fall from heights. To eliminate a working at heights or fall from heights event in your business and never have it happen again, never have a repeat incident of a working from heights event again in your business, you would literally have to eliminate 
working at heights from your business. Now, that's pretty hard in construction. That's pretty hard in maintenance. That's pretty hard in a lot of industries. How would you eliminate working from heights in the construction industry? You couldn't do it. So talk to me a little bit more about the difference between event investigations and systemic investigations. The way we like to term it is the traditional ways is this incident investigation. What we look to do is event learning. So the difference is rather than investigate just the event or the incident, what we're doing is we're going to learn about the work. We're going to investigate the task, what's actually happening. And that's the difference. So rather than so say we had uh, someone fall from height, we typically would just investigate that, you know, what time they turned up to work, the pre-start meeting, they got their gear on and they went up and they were working at height, they fell and they got treated hospital. That would be our timeline. That's all we'd event or we'd investigate. What we would do is investigate the whole way work at height is done within that organisation. Or with that, you know, we start off with the team and then that site, day shift, night shift, and we look at the whole process of work at height and how it's impacted. And so we learn about the work, and that's where the systemic issues lie because we're looking for the constraints and the trade-offs and the goal conflicts that happen all around that work. Yeah, there's often unseen pressures that, you know, one person has said work safely and the the other one has said, yes, but faster, (laughs) for example. Well, and that's right. So this is where we're talking about just that work. And so we're just investigating how work happens every day. So because to be quite frank, in industries, particularly in the Western world, we don't have a lot of incidents. Particularly, you know, in first world, second world countries, we don't actually have a lot of incidents. So we might have one a month. Now, if we're only looking at how that job was done one time out of a year's worth of work, that's all we're going to get. So we need to understand how it's done 365 days a year and nights a year if it's on night shift as well to really get an understanding or discover an understanding about what's actually happening. So when you talk about, and I said I would, we would come back to this, but when you talk about work as normal, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, so that's what we call work as normal. And it's based on Professor Dodd Conklin's work. And it's that workers imagine, which is our procedures and our policies and training. You know, it's looking at what happened on the day when someone may have got hurt. But the crucial bit is that work is normal. And that's how it happens all the time. That's how it happens on a good day, a bad day, an exceptional day. That's how it happens all the time. So what we're talking about there is this what's going on in the workplace that creates sense to the people who do the work to how they do the work. So we know for a fact, it's not a fact, but we know that it's very hard for a business to have all their work instructions or work procedures 100% complete and 100% correct. In fact, anecdotally, it's around 60% and 70%. Some businesses are quite high, a bit higher, some are much lower. So what are workers doing with the other 40, 50%? They're adapting. They're making it up, you know, and that's not based out of, that's just not out of nothing. What that behavior about what they decide to do on how to complete a task is driven by the conditions that they work in and the systems they're provided by their organization. 
And that's how they make those decisions. I'll give an example. If you ask a team of workers to dig a hole and you give them a digger or an excavator, they'll use, or a backhoe, they'll use that machine to dig the hole. You give them some shovels and no backhoe, they'll use shovels because that's what they've got. That's what's been provided. Yeah, and it it occurs to me, you know, it would be so easy if you weren't really thinking about it to develop a procedure that makes perfect sense in one season, (laughs) but not in another season, right? The weather conditions change and suddenly I'm not going to wear those heavy gloves. They just, uh, you know, it's just too hot or or whatever it is, right? 100% correct. It would be impossible to write a procedure that covers, yeah, it would be all, virtually, I think it's virtually impossible to write a, a procedure that would cover every variation of the task. There might be some very narrow work, and of course it's going to exist in some very narrow scope work, you know, where there's only maybe two steps, three steps. But any sort of complex task, there's going to be so many variabilities. And if anything the last two years has taught us, is that we can't rely on having an available workforce. <laughs> so, <we're constantly, laughs> yeah. so, you know, we can't rely on an available workforce. So we see you know, with COVID, so we're seeing numbers slashed, but guess what? Demand hasn't. In fact, anything demand's gone up. So people are doing more work with less. Um, we're seeing less availability of parts and components and building materials. And so we're seeing people transcend. So in Australia, for example, we've got a real lack of structural timber for our construction industry for building houses, which is one of our primary methods of building here. So what we're seeing is some transition towards steel because steel was a bit more available. There's more steel frame construction happening. But the same builders are building those homes. So they have to transcend how they work from timber to steel. You know, we're seeing all sorts of things happen in that space, to write a procedure that covers all of that, I don't think you can do it. Breakdowns, equipment not being completely correct for the job. You turn up to, if you're working out in the public and you turn up to one area, you've got the public, for example. (laughs) And they're all, you know, and the public are always great to work around when you're doing high-risk work. Those variations you can't account for in a procedure. So workers have to deal with it. The best they can at the time with the conditions they've given and the systems of work, those resources and everything else they're provided with at the time, that's basically how they do it. That's how they make their decisions. Okay. So this is a similar question, but I think it's a bit of a different nuance. What's the difference between an investigation that happens before an event versus after an event? Oh, well, that's basically almost a risk assessment, right? So we're basically... The safety industry has, for all intents and purposes, widely destroyed the purpose of a risk assessment. Risk assessments are always, even under the international standard, are to identify the uncertainty, to identify the unknown. The only difference between a pre-accident investigation or pre-event investigation and a post-event investigation is the fact the event has occurred. That's it. There's no other difference. All the risks were still there. All the issues were still there. So we can use the same methodology, learning about work as normal, in identifying the risk. And in fact, if we that's the best way to do it because at the end of the day, it's the uncertainty is our risk and the unknowns are our risk. As we tell senior leadership, you can't manage what you don't know and what you don't understand. 
So it's better, obviously, to gain that knowledge and understanding before there's an event so you can take some action rather than after event. So there's really not a lot of difference except the fact that we've had a negative outcome. Or actually, to be quite honest, we might have had a positive outcome. So risk is both threat and opportunity. And so events can be success and not success. And that's the other real issue we have is that we don't spend any time in our organizational learning. Most organizations don't spend a lot of time learning what makes them successful. That you know, they don't so an example is we might have a project that's delivered way ahead of time, ahead of budget. You know, we didn't have really any adverse safety outcomes that we were aware of. Our people were, you know, the mental health was was great, morale was great. When's the last time your organization investigated that? Because if I'm a leader, yeah, I'd love to know what made that successful. So my next project, I can put the same things in. And and that, yeah, I think that'd be valuable. That makes a ton of sense. So you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but talk to me more about the role of, of blame and depth in investigation. So you talked about it in terms of traditional investigations. How does it relate now to sort of newer, the, the kinds of investigations that you're advocating for? So traditionally in investigations, so there's a couple of parts of this. So traditionally in investigations, some organisations will treat the individuals involved as guilty until presumed innocence. So we see things like they're stood down from their duties. They might be even sent home. That's at the one end of the scale. Uh, and then some more moderate organisations will keep them working, maybe give them some other duties, maybe not. But their only involvement in the investigation then is they're interviewed or they give some sort of statement and they provide some information to the investigator and they hear nothing more about it unless they're disciplined in some sort of formal way or lose their job. So they're you know given a written warning or sacked, fired. Or if that doesn't happen to them, they're retrained. Or possibly the first they find out about it is when the organisation communicates it to the rest of the business in some sort of a, you know, information bulletin or safety alert or uh, some sort of toolbox talk. So that really impacts. There's no involvement from the people. It's actually standing people down creates psychological harm and the organisation's responsible for that. You know, and I don't think a lot of organisations have considered that. You know, you talk to people who've been stood down from their duties and sent home, and that it creates mental anguish. And we've inflicted that on one of our employees. Now, if we're a caring organisation, sorry, I, that doesn't work for me. So that's on the one side. What we're trying to do is create this psychologically safe space where our employees feel empowered and engaged, and wanting to share with us the truth about what's going on in their workplace. So to do that, it's how we view them because that leads to how we then ask our questions and talk with them. And so that's one part. And the second part to that is actually involving in the investigation because who better to help fix something wrong in your organisation than the people who do the work, than the people who are involved in the event. They're the best people to help you because they are closest to the work. So that's the difference we're trying to make. So I mentioned a couple of things there in terms of how we talk to them. So 
if we view, say someone had a vehicle accident, very common. Actually, in Australia, the transport, incidents involving transport are the highest number of fatalities in Australia. If we have a driver of, of a truck that has an incident, if we view the driver as the problem, all our questions will be about the driver. And those, and because that's all we ask about is the driver, all our solutions will be about the driver. And then our solutions have just left everyone else at risk. So we need to change our questions from about the driver to about the organisation because we've got the most skin in the game. The people with the biggest influence on how the work's done is the organisation. So we need to change our focus. And that's one way of moving, creating that psychological safe space. So when we talk to the people involved in incidents, we need to talk to them about the work. And, and that's where we start. So if I was to interview someone involved in some sort of event, I talk to them about their job, first of all. I ask them about their job. Tell me about how you work. What do you do with your work? Mm -hmm. How does it work? How does this task work? Walk me through it. Describe it to me. What's a great day look like? You know, those sorts of questions. You know, what's out of your control? When you're doing that task, what do you have no control over? When do you have to adapt? When don't things go well and you have to change how you, when do you have to change your plans? Those are the sort of questions we ask and we get them to give examples. We get them to give stories. You know, we call it generative questioning because we're trying to generate stories of how they work. We pretty much ignore the event for most of it. And then if the event doesn't come out, and normally it does, right? 99.9% .9 of the time it comes out. But if it doesn't, then we might go back to the event. And then we're asking questions along the lines, well, what was different on that day? How was it different? You know, you know what were you feeling? How, how you know, mm -hmm. we're asking about these sort of questions and we're trying to uncover those in those stories what's going on all the time. What do they not have enough equipment? Is it not being maintained properly? Or alternatively, they have really great equipment being maintained really well, right? But they're being, are they being sent to the right job? Do they have the right, you know, are they, do they know the work? Do they, is the planning, what's the planning like? You know, those are the sort of things we're looking at, at trying to get from those questions. So that's the first part. And we find that creates this psychological safe space because most people, nearly everyone has pride in what they do, you know, and they love to talk about their job. It creates this comfort with them. We've got to be genuine empathetic. You know, we're trying to understand, but we need to put ourselves in their shoes so that we can understand what made sense to them. So if they're a two-week into a role for two weeks, they've had very little, they've had no reference point before. It's their first time doing this task. You know, maybe there's not a lot of supervision. Maybe the tools are a little bit confusing. Maybe the work's a bit complex. We need to understand from that point of view, rather than a grisly 20-year veteran in safety is full of counterfactuals. If only they did this, if only <laughs> they'd done that. We're, that's the point of view we're trying to get. And that creates comfort and that creates them the ability and the freedom to tell us the truth about their work. Now, the second part to that is we talk about involving people in investigations. So although some companies try and do this, they're not really doing it well. When we talk about involving people in investigation, what we're talking about, if you're involved in the event, you know, you might have been a witness, you might have been the person who something happened to or you were involved in the task, we involve you in the event. And by that, 
You help us gather the information and not just your own. You help us analyze the information. And that's a massive step that's missed by people involving people. And you help us come up with the corrective actions or the actions or the controls. That is engagement. That is involving people in investigation. We do those things. And what that does, it turns around the culture of investigations in an organization. It creates trust in the process. It creates this transparency there. And what we have is those people, when they go back to the line, they go back to the work, and their workmates and their colleagues say, you know, you've been away doing this investigation. How was it? They'll come back with positive things to say about it, which means that those people have positive thoughts about investigations, which means if there's something happens and they're involved in an event themselves, they're far more likely to report it. And not just that, they're far more likely to report things before it becomes an incident or an event. Right. Yeah, it occurs to me, it's like the difference between a team effort of like, look, folks, something went wrong here. Let's work together to find out. And and especially that piece about involving them in the analysis. I think that there's a danger in the traditional way of, it's probably unspoken and probably unintended, but having this like, okay, you tell me what happened. I am the smart person who will analyze and decide, you know, I, I will decide the causality of events and choose the punishment or whatever. There's sort of a team versus team effort versus a bit of a power differential, I think, in the two ways of seeing it. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think the other side as well is a lack of trust. So typically in the past, because we're based on this judicial process, we would never let a criminal investigate their own offense, right? True. <laughs> and that's the same standard that's applied in safety investigations. Oh, we can't let them investigate it because they're going to influence the investigation so they look good or they don't look as bad and they'll influence the investigation that way. It's such an outmoded way of thinking. They'll, they'll act like a criminal, but maybe because we're treating them like a criminal. That's <laughs> exactly right. Why wouldn't you start from a position of trust? If we want the, our workers to trust right. us, yeah. we have to trust our workers. You know, we trust we trust them, you know, sometimes with millions yeah. of dollars worth of assets, you know, very expensive equipment, machinery, our reputation, but they make an error and all of a sudden we lose trust in them. I, it doesn't make sense to me. So I think, and that's where sometimes I think that disconnect comes in, both with what you've talked about in terms of like, I'm the expert in investigations, I'll do this bit and I'll do it alone, sitting at my desk in front of my computer right, with a few statements and some training records and some procedures to actually involving them in and saying that we run what we call investigation maturity assessments where we look at the maturity of organisations' investigations. And can I tell you how many people we've interviewed in, in relation to those? And the amount of people who, when we ask them about what do you think of the investigation process, they say, well, I don't know, but I was involved in an event three months ago, they present the investigation report and none of that happened. None of that happened. Yeah, they've got a basic thing right and then that's about <laughs> it. Nothing else happened and the rest is made up. Yeah, and which is obviously not going to engender any kind of trust 
So you just mentioned investigation maturity, and I actually wanted to ask about that. What kind of outcomes could be expected from what you would characterize as sort of a mature investigation process? So some things we've talked about so far. So firstly, that we have the investigation includes the people who do the work and the analysis and the action. So a mature investigation process has that. It looks beyond, it's a sufficient depth to identify what we call systemic organisational risks. So in that space, what we're looking for is is beyond the superficial organisational issues that we see. So quite often we'll see investigations which will say the root cause was the worker wasn't trained and then the action will be train the worker. Well, that's fascinating. That's a start point for me. If the worker wasn't trained, why wasn't the worker trained? You know, was worker not trained because we didn't have a training needs analysis or the training needs analysis doesn't match the role descriptions. Maybe there were no role descriptions. Maybe the training department's not resourced enough. Maybe we didn't know we needed to train someone in that particular task. Why did we not know those things? Why weren't those things in place? And trying to really digging into why that organisational issue existed in the first place. So we know, so what we're talking in relation to training, if our training system isn't providing us with trained, competent workers, that is a systemic issue because it's not just this one thing across the board it could be involved. It's like purchasing. We didn't, you know, we didn't buy fit-for-work equipment or buy fit-for-purpose equipment. That superficial. If we, the deeper question is, well, why didn't we have fit-for-purpose equipment? Well, because purchasing doesn't talk to operations. Why doesn't purchasing talk to operations? Well, purchasing is one person working 70 or 80 hours a week trying to keep up with paying invoices and buying stuff, and they've got no time. They just go on Google, Google something, pick it on price. It turns up at the warehouse. There you go. There's your equipment. There's no analysis there. That's a systemic issue because if we're not providing fit-for-purpose equipment across our organisation, that affects our capacity to be safe as an organisation. So when we're looking at maturity of investigations, we're looking for that depth. We're looking for that depth. And probably the most important thing is what we're looking for is investigations that reduce systemic risk. So actually move the risk assessment downwards right move the make the risk more tolerable that's what we're looking for are they actually reducing the organization's risk profile and also on the flip side of that if where they've identified success they've identified opportunities to implement further success in the business so those last two points really point to me to an organization that has a mature investigation process you've been in this game for over 20 years now Do you think that you see a difference in how, like, clearly there's still investigations that are superficial or blame-based or that sort of thing. However, if you think back to when you started till now, do you see the needle moving at all or? Yeah, so we do see the needle moving. Um, A lot of organizations are trying to move to identifying organizational issues. Uh, The problem is they're not, they're still not to the depth we need. And it's a bit of a bookend, actually, what we're seeing. So, Typically, a lot of investigation reports will see, you know, we've identified these system issues at the, say, the exec summary. This is what we've seen. And then in the findings, corrective actions, we'll see some organisation issues on that end. What we're not seeing is that applied in the middle. In the middle, in the report, in the sequence of events, in the in that 
sort of long form story of what happened, we're seeing a lot of blame in those. So, you know, when the manager gets it, there's still this focus on blame. But probably the most worrying thing, although we're seeing a trend towards organisational issues, the problem is the actions we're seeing really weak. So we're seeing a lot of training actions. We're seeing a lot of rewrite of procedure actions or review of procedure actions. Uh, we're seeing a lot of um, like toolbox talks, you know, where we'll put the information in some sort of communication advice out to the broader organisation. And that's probably the top three we see. Um uh, in terms of corrective actions, and they do not reduce systemic risk. So a challenge to, to, to our listeners today is this. Have a look at your last 12 months' worth of investigations, like for high potential stuff, right? Let's not worry about the low-consequence stuff. You know, high-impact, high-consequence, high high-potential. Take out all your administrative actions, so procedures, training, you know, talks, whatever that is. Remove all of that. What's left? what's left. That'll give you probably a really good quick picture of how mature your investigation process is. And by the way, you can also do that on your risk assessments. If you do that on your risk assessments as well, remove all your administrative actions from your risk assessments and look at what's left, that gives you a true picture of your tolerability of risk at your organisation. You've suggested that organisations are often under-resourced for investigations and that Ideally, they should have a dedicated investigations team. Why do you think that's important? So there's a couple of things done, Pecky. So firstly, in very few organisations have a dedicated investigation team. It's, you know, it's a high cost to the business and the business doesn't see a return on investment. By the way, we can change that. We can, we can clearly demonstrate an ROI there. So what happens is investigations are either done, facilitated by safety people or by operations themselves. Now, the problem with that is we don't budget for it. So there's nothing in the budget that says, you know, when the manager's doing their budget for the year, they don't go, oh, I'm going to lose, you know, so many people for so many days to do an investigation. So whenever an an event occurs, it's always break-in work. So they've still got to do their normal day job. They've still got to fit it around their (laughs) normal work and get all that done. Plus, they've got to do an investigation. Right, you know, if that there's a trade-off, so we're either going to see a compromised work performance from their normal job, which is their main role, or we're going to see a compromised investigation. We're talking time and resources. An example is this: so if you've nearly killed someone in your organisation, like just lucky that someone didn't die, right? Think of the the resources that get allocated to that, and it's typically not a lot, especially where you compare it to where if you've been in a tragic circumstances where you had a fatality organisation, how much money, time, effort we throw into that investigation. Now, if the only difference is a, is an, a centimetre or a split second in time, what's the difference in how we should approach the resources we spend at that? You know, they, we talk about in near-miss investigations as being like this, we're lucky, you know. This is a free opportunity to learn and then we invest almost nothing in the learning from that near miss when we should invest a heap of money in that near miss if it was a legitimate, we, you know, a centimetre, a second in it, you know, a, a stroke of luck. We don't invest the resources. So you get what you pay for, you know. Leaders are smart. They know that. You get what you pay for. 
But to try and, you know, demonstrate the return on investment is difficult to do and take some take some planning. But you can do it. You can do it. If we can demonstrate that a control or an action out of an investigation will actually save someone's life, stop people getting hurt, we can actually work that out in most organisations, what the cost of that saving would be. We can work that out. There's the, the you know risk based risk is based on finance. We there will be most organisations have some sort of uh, uh, statistical value of life. We can work that out. We can work out the cost of implementation, the cost of the life cycle of the control, as opposed to what it would cost us the likelihood of someone losing their life. We can clearly demonstrate value in that. So that's the first one in terms of allocating resources. We we could and the other thing with that is. We can sort of predict. So most budgets based on what we spent last year, right, and where we spent it, and, and we can predict what we want to do in the future. Most organisations' trend of incidents is fairly static. So we can actually work out what it would cost us and put it in our budget. Right. We just don't consider it. We just don't consider it. Uh, the other reason I like um, permanent investigation teams is purely this. Investigations, facilitating investigations is a perishable skill. Too often I've seen organisations go away and train, you know, almost entire workforces in investigations and they're lucky to do one in their career. They might do one or two and this is the operations side and they forget. Like it's a, it's not their day job. They've got normal work that they do and they forget and so it's a perishable skill. If you want to see the best return, if you could afford to have um, a full-time investigation team. That would be my my advice. If you can't, then have a just a dedicated pool of people who are your specialist investigators and they do them more frequently. They might still have a day job, but we account for that in our budget, that they're going to be pulled away from that. We provide them backup so they're not stressed and placed under production pressure to do both their full work plus the investigation. We can plan for that. We can resource it properly. And we'll get far better outcomes with experienced investigators than we will with amateur investigators. As you're speaking, I'm thinking it sounds like, and I don't know this, this is my ignorance. Do most companies have like a risk, a risk assessment team? Because it sounds to me like risk assessment and investigations and the way you're discussing is the same thing. Exactly the same thing. So a lot of organizations might have a risk team, but they're predominantly based around finance. So that risk predominantly in organisations, big organisations, mm, belongs to okay. finance, and that's about, we're talking about enterprise risk. When we talk about health and safety, there is the odd organisation that might have one or two in the risk team in health and safety, but they're more looking after the system. In terms of facilitators of risk assessments and that, we, again, it's a break in work again, you know, and, and too often that risk assessment is done very quickly and I've seen so many done at a desk by their safety professional, right, or safety advisor or whatever it is, at a desk by themselves, not talking to people, working it out, and then going around and getting someone to sign off on it. And those things are an administrative tick and flick. To be quite frank, they're doing nothing to protect your organisation's health and safety risk. We need to understand to do proper risk assessments. It's even in the standard. We need to understand the context of work. And we need to identify the uncertainty. 
too many risk assessments I see do neither of those things. There's no exploration on the context of work, and they certainly don't look for uncertainty. They just repeat what the known risks already are. And then we end up in these rooms with cut and paste, you know, with an Excel spreadsheet or a bow tie or whatever the methodology people are using, and they're boring, people don't want to go to them, and we have no innovation comes from risk assessments. Very, we you know, I shouldn't say no, it shouldn't be absolute, but very little innovation ever comes out of risk assessment. All that comes out is a repeat of everything else we've done in the past. So, yeah, I the way we do risk assessments is almost zero value, except for giving this perceived protection to leadership that they've assessed risk when actually they haven't. So when you talk about looking for risks that we don't know about it and truly investigating, one of the methods, again, you talk about getting the stories of work or identifying work as normal. How would you recommend, like, practically speaking, how do you go about doing that? You talked about generative questions. Is there any other method? The best way is generative questioning. It's probably where you do it and how you do it. So there's no wrong or white way here. So like if I'm going to ask these questions, I want to do them where the work is because I can ask my favourite, show me how you do this task, right? So I can observe the work being done. I can talk to them while the work's being done and I can develop that deep understanding of the context of their work. So that's probably the best place is where the work's being done. Failing that, small work groups are the best way to go. So you know, even approaches like learning teams, which are fantastic. You know, we get people in that do the work, various, so it might be, so if we've got a a manufacturing plant, it might be the people who operate the manufacturing plant and the people who maintain the manufacturing plant. We get them in a room and we work through the task and we ask those generative questions to that work group. And it doesn't matter if it's an investigation or risk assessment, you can do it at the job site where they're working or you can do it in a small room, but you've got to create that psychological safe space. And that means sometimes given leadership the boot. We don't want them there. You know, we want them there at the start. Yeah. Thank you. I want to know everything. Tell me everything. I'm going to leave you in the facilitator's hands and I'm really looking forward to coming back and, and, and letting me know what you've come up with. That's what we want from our leaders and then providing the resources and the space to do it and the support and then just let us dig in, you know, with the people who do the work. And, and yeah, that's how we do it. So it can either be on the site where it's in or in a, in, a, in, a, in a room with a group of people. And, you know, there's no wrong or right way to do this. You, I've seen learning teams work with like, you know, 50 or 60 people. My preference is under 10 because that allows, you know, my preference is probably, you know, four or five to 10 uh, in that sweet spot. It's about eight maybe. And we just really start to explore that. But having said that, if you can't get everyone together, then just go out and hit people up one by one. You know, the worst thing you can do is put someone in a room and put the tape recorder on and write out your notes and all this sort of stuff in. We're not CSI. Yeah, it occurs to me that also it would be helpful to have them show it to you because if you have someone describe something, like let's say they say, and then I twist the lever, but then they show it to you and actually you're rotating not twisting or you know what I mean? Like just little nuances of language. Sometimes it's helpful. I I imagine to watch. It's invaluable and you can't get it from CCTV, right? CCTV is so two dimensional. Watching them do something and demonstrate something 
is great because, as you said, they're, they're twisting or rotating or however they're doing it. But what you might see is that the varying heights of the work crew, you know, the very size of the work crew could also impact how they do that task. Some might have to stretch. Some might have to crouch. Some might have to bend over. So discovering those things is really valuable. But if we can't get in the workplace, what I generally try to do, so I don't use, whenever I facilitate anything like this, even risk assessments, I don't use a computer. I use whiteboards and flip charts and things like that. I'll get them to draw it. I love getting people to draw things. If I can't be at the work site with them, my next best thing is, you know, maybe we can put some pictures up, some video up, and they can explain it and walk me through it. That's fantastic help. And also get them to draw it. And the reason I love people drawing things out is because whilst they're drawing, they're telling me a story. And I get both. So, And what it does is it really crystallizes what they're saying because they've now got to transform this into a picture. So it makes them walk things through and actually makes, encourages and enables them to put things in the right perspective, in the right place, in the right order. Such a valuable little tool that we use to do that is drawing. Yeah, I can imagine it makes them think in ways they, oh, yeah. in a more detailed way than they would normally have to, because for them, it's, you know, they don't have to think about it. They they know, but. It gets it out of their head, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, where, which is where you need it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stay good stuck in there. <laughs> it doesn't help us at all. <laughs> and actually, they find it quite cathartic too, by the way. Like it's actually a very cathartic exercise them talking about their work and explaining their work and drawing their work and getting these things off their chest, they find very cathartic. So it really helps with that mental space, especially if they've been involved in an event because they're talking about it. So we find that really valuable. Yeah, I would imagine it helps them really feel seen in what they're doing. Yeah. So how should investigations or their outcomes ideally help managers? Every investigation that goes to a manager, the manager should be able to honestly answer this question. What have I learned that I didn't know before? Now, if the manager learned nothing that they didn't already know, I that investigation probably has a few issues or why do we even do the investigation in the first place? I would question the value of that why we even did the investigation, as well as if we did it properly or not. We can't manage what we don't know and don't understand. So the more information we give to managers, the better decisions they'll be able to make. Because at the end of the day, everything that a business organization's done is governed by how resources are managed. So how much money, time, effort, people, equipment, whatever we put into a process is decided by leaders who move resources around. Now, enable them to best place resources and best spend resources, they have to have the best and most accurate information possible with really good recommendations to a system because they're not the experts in the work. So they need really clear understanding of what's happening in their business, a real understanding that these are things you didn't know about, but here's some really good recommendations that came from the people who do the work, that'll address that. And quite frankly, most investigations we see, as safety is just an outcome of work, a lot of the really good investigations we see, 90% of the actions actually improve all of the work. They, they improve cost, efficiency, not just safety. They improve a whole heap of other stuff 
at the same time. So that's what managers should be looking for. If they can't honestly they learn nothing, that's a poor investigation. If they learn something they didn't know about and they can then take action on that, good investigation. And a good way to convince higher-ups of the ROI of investigating safety as well. And that's sometimes where I think investigators fall over as well because so we'll do an investigation, we'll report it forward, the the manager will look at it and go, well, we can't afford that control, we're not going to do that, we're not going to do that action, we're not going to do that action. We need to start treating our investigation reports like business cases. You know, we need to we need to ensure there's some business case element to our investigation report that clearly demonstrates yeah. the value of putting this in. We need to create a clear link between the action and the reduction of risk. Right? And if we do that, we're far more likely to succeed in the managers taking on board our recommendations and implementing them. If we, you know, just put simple stuff that we can't you know, that doesn't really make a difference. I think that's excellent, very practical advice. What uh, core skills does a good investigator need? So if we have listeners who are interested in specializing in investigations, what skills would you recommend they develop? And maybe what's the best way to develop those skills? So I think the biggest is soft skills. You know, investigators need to have really good soft skills. They have to have an innate empathy for people. And most people in safety tend to have that innate empathy, so that's not too much of a stretch. And they have to really focus on their soft skills and they need to focus, they need to truly believe, I think, that they'll achieve better outcomes by investigating the work or learning about the work than the person. So I think those soft skills, so the way to to get good soft skills is to, you know, be the master of your own professional development, you know, like read like Todd Conklin's books on, you know, the new view of safety and human organisational performance, you know, pre-accident investigation, read Sidney Decker's books, you know, the field guide to safety, listen to podcasts, you know, like try and chase down this information that's out there, do some courses, you know, whatever you need to do, improve your soft skills, then practice, practice, practice. Don't wait for an investigation to go out and practice your soft skills. Like the first time you talk to your workforce shouldn't be as a result of an event. You know, you should be asking those same questions every time you go into the field. We need to, so good investigators do not just spend all their time just asking questions about investigations. They'll they'll look for downtime or this their normal work, predominantly because, you know, very few teams have investigation teams. Out in the field, asking about normal work. Right. When's a, what's a good day look like? Walk me through the task, learning and building that soft skill repertoire. So I think that's number one, attention to detail and having that real attention to detail, that genuine curiosity, you know, being genuinely curious, building relationships with the stakeholders at a high level, you know, is and build personal relationships. So it's too often we're trapped in this work relationship where we only talk about work at work. Make the time to find something personal about it. Do they, you know, what food do they like to eat? Do they go camping? Do they do they exercise? You know, what's their family? Family is such a great in with people, you know, and, and practice those and, and find out and make that the first thing you talk about whenever you talk to someone. So even if emailing. So my first line in email to people I work with is about something personable. You know, how was your weekend? What did you get up to? Or 
how's, you know, your partner and kids or, you know, how about those football team, that, you know, how'd they go last night because we both follow the same football team. Build that first and then it makes it easier to ask for stuff because in safety we don't own anything, right? <laughs> so we always need operations. To, we always need their buy-in. So yeah, do that. And the challenge is someone you don't like or someone you don't have any relationship with at all. The challenge for the listeners, pick someone that you have a struggle with relationship and build a personal connection, right, and see the dynamic of that relationship change. Um, well, what else was I going with this? I, I, um, be curious and don't be linear with your thinking as an investigator. Don't get trapped. So one of the big common um, issues we see is people have a system of investigation. So it might be, you know, Taproot, it might be ICAM, it might be some other RCA type that they do, and that don't be trapped by outcome. It's the same with risk assessments. People are trapped by the outcome, this spreadsheet that they may use, so that they let that govern the process of how they do their discovery. Don't let the template that you have to put things in drive how you discover what goes in there. Discover and then make the template work or change the template if that's not working for you. So don't get trapped by that. So, yeah, those soft skills, so appreciative listening, you know, generative questioning, practice those skills. Those are the most important skills you'll have as an investigator. And probably within that said is acknowledge that you will always have a bias, right, because investigations are a social construct. They're subjective in the end. They're always going to govern by our own lived experience. So it's minimising the impact of that and understanding and recognising where your bias or lived experience might be impacting how you ask questions. So just be mindful of that, right? Hold that mirror of self-reflection up. As you were speaking again, I was thinking the good thing about all of those skills, curiosity, empathy, developing relationships, is that you can practice them at any time. (laughs) If you are human and you relate to other humans, whether it's in a workplace situation or not, you will get plenty of opportunities (laughs) to practice. I love that line. Be a human. Like, just be a human. Like, it's not hard, right? Be a human. Like, we're not a cop. We're not a cop. I left those days behind years ago. Not a cop. I'm not there to do a regulator's job. At the end of the day, what I want from my investigation is to reduce the actual systemic risk within my organisation to make it a safer place to work. That's my outcome. That's If I've done that, I've achieved something. I can be proud of that. And however, how we get there is by harnessing our people, you know, and that's what it's all about. Great. I have a few questions that I ask all of the guests at the end that are just a little more generic, a little less about the topic at hand. So I wanted to ask you if, uh, what are the core human skills? Okay. So this is almost exactly what we just talked about, but I'll ask it anyway. If you think of it, not necessarily in terms of investigations is what are the core human skills or non-technical skills that are the most important to develop in tomorrow's safety professionals. And I'm thinking in terms of people who go to programs like diplomas, certificates, universities to train to become safety professionals. Where should those programs be looking in terms of of those skills? We've talked about the soft skills, you know, teaching people 
how to ask better questions. I think that's the number one thing. I think defining the role of what a safety professional is, I think they could do a better job there. We're highly focused on compliance um, when really we need to be focused on facilitator. So I think facilitation skills are key. I, I, I would encourage um, any safety professional to really develop their facilitation skills. How they can help organisations discover what their issues are, firstly, not assume what their issues are. Too often in safety, we come and say, these are your problems. How about we discover it from them, what their needs are, then facilitate them connecting with the right people to assist with fixing those needs. It might be the organisation. Help build the capacity within the organisation to fix their own problems. So I think as a safety professional now, we've got to move from compliance. Now, look, there's always going to be a bit of that. You know, that's part of our role. But I think it should be like a minor part of our role. A major part of our role should be about facilitation. Facilitating organisations improving their own capacity and capability to improve their work. And notice I said work, not safety. So because we know it's just an outcome, right, of the work. So those skills, I think, are really important. I think the big concern for me is that a lot of safety people stop learning once they either leave their formal program, which just gives them a common language, right? They stop learning and then all they ever learn is from their own internal organisation's way of doing safety. So that's probably the second major part for me is if safety wants to be treated as a profession like engineers and other professionals like that within organisations, then we need to act like professionals. So we need to have those characteristics and those traits. So professional self-development is a massive part. So, you know, I am constantly looking at new papers online. I'm very fortunate to have a friend who sends me stuff and does a lot of that. So he knows what I'm interested in and he picks stuff out for me. I'm constantly watching and listening to podcasts and webcasts and webinars and things like that. I go to conferences and listen to how other people talk and building a network of people. So that's probably another skill I'd like to see in being taught at our institutions is networking skills. How to increase and leverage networks. I think that would be a great skill to have as well. Great. So a little more personal now, if you could travel back in time and speak to yourself at the beginning of your career and you could only give young Mark one piece of advice, what do you think that might be? You don't know anything. (laughs) (laughs) My younger self thought he knew everything. Yeah. It would be to go back and slap myself and say, you actually don't know anything. Start asking better questions. (laughs) 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 Oh, I was, yeah, anyway, the arrogance of youth. Great. That's great advice. You should come talk to my kids. You've mentioned a few resources as we were talking throughout the questions, but I do like to ask at the end, do you have any practical resources uh, that you would suggest to safety managers? So that could be a website or a concept. It could be a book. Okay. So there's there's probably a few. Uh, Todd Conklin's Pre-Accident Investigation is a great book. Sydney Deckard's Field Guide to Safety. It's in its, I'm not sure what edition it's in with Sydney at the moment, but um, that's a good book. There's a podcast out of Australia called Safety of Work, and it's by Dave Proven and Drew Ray. They're very good 
they actually break down scientific papers. So what we're trying to do in safety is look for empirical science-backed data for our interventions. So they break down a lot of those papers that, that are out there at the moment. And so there's a lot of really good information there. So they're probably the other ones. In a really handy, I think there's a book called Paper Safe by Greg Smith, who's now I know it's this is an Australian book. It's based out of Australia, but he's an Australian lawyer, but he's a specialist in work health and safety. That Paper Safe book, get a copy of that. See if it applies in your country because basically it tells from a work health safety lawyer point of view, like one of Australia's leading advocates, about how your procedures aren't going to keep you safe in court as a leader. It's what actually your people will do. I recommend to all of my clients that they actually get buy a copy of that book and give it to their board members, their CEO, and every member of their leadership team to read. Because I think it's that they need to get that understanding because too often they think paperwork's what's going to save them, and it's not. So those are there. And look, you can flick to my website. I've got a few webinars there if people are interested as well. Oh, well, that was my next question is where can our listeners find you on the web? So look, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, we've got our website, www.investigationsdifferently.com.au. We're based in Australia, but we travel the world. So yeah, we've got a few resources on there, some webinars and some articles. So that's there. And if you want to make contact, yeah, reach out on LinkedIn and say hello. I'd love to hear from you. Great. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for joining us, Mark. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Oh, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. And it's been great to meet you. My thanks also to the Safety Labs by Slice team who find fascinating guests and uh, make the podcast run smoothly every week. Thanks, Slice. Appreciate it. Safety Labs is created by Slice, the only safety knife on the market with a finger-friendly blade. Find us at sliceproducts.com. Until next time, stay safe.